And as we look in Daniel chapter 9 today, we see a man who is, uh, really has been a great encouragement to my life already. I have just enjoyed studying his life. I've enjoyed seeing how God has used this young man. And now an old man. Amen. Because uh, he started young in our, in our series on Daniel. And we saw his faith in that young infancy. And it was just unshakable in those early days. And then as he has grown, so we have grown. And we've seen that our, our faith, our life can be unshakable through Jesus Christ. And we're just an encouraging thing as we get to Daniel chapter 9. As we see his life has been a life of prayer. No other time I think that we have needed prayer, but not just God bless this day and bless this food and holy, holy, loose to be good. Amen. It's not, not, not those kinds of prayers. We're talking about a Daniel style prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit today as we look in the word of God, as we see just the, the great life of prayer in his life. Now, now, every night, my family and I, we bow together and we pray together every evening. And uh, I, I love to hear my children pray. And if you, if you hear children pray, they are, they're fun they're just fun to hear them pray. If you'd like to work in the toddler's class, I'm sure those teachers will let you do some work in the toddler's class, but, but it's just fun to get in that class and to, and to hear these kiddos, and, and there's just the creativity. Here's what I've learned about kids. They'll pray things that you only think. Amen? And so it makes it a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, I've got a few that someone compiled some prayers shared by children. I want to share these with you. They're a lot of fun this morning. A little girl named Debbie, she was seven years old. She said, Dear God, Please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. <laughs> Parents, you've probably been there on week number two or three, especially if they're colicky. Uh, Angela, age eight, said, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. <laughs> there is a stage in every boy's life where that seems to go out the window or through the years, whichever it is. Some of us are still looking for them. I'm just saying. Hank, age seven, said, Dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the TV weatherman. That's always good. Lois, age number nine, said, Dear God, please help me in school. I need help in spelling, adding, history, geography, and writing. I don't need help in anything else. David, that, just, just so you know, that was me praying to God when I was age nine. David, age seven, said, Dear God, I need a raise of my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father, thank you, Amen and amen. You know, these are great prayers. These are out of the mouth of babes, you know, and it's exciting to hear these little children. But when we look at, at Daniel and we look at his life today, there's really a call here to increase our prayer life and develop not just a prayer life, but a great life of prayer. And during the reign of Darius the Mede, uh, we see Daniel was premier of the country. He was head over everything. He was in his 80s, a man whose long life and position uh, of influence should have allowed him to be able to just sit back, uh, enjoy uh, a life of ease, maybe not, no worries, just wrap himself in a Persian rug, rug, enjoy his Social Security check or whatever it was, and just relax the rest of his days on a rocking chair on his front porch. Doesn't that sound nice? But instead, amen, but instead what we find is a man spending his days pouring over the books. Pouring over the books. Now, obviously, during this time, there was uh, when the 
children of Israel were taken captivity into Babylon, uh, many of them took portions of the scrolls and, and the books. They didn't have the entire Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelations, but they had, they had some of the prophets and some of the Torah, and they would took those and they, they guarded them and they would reference those. And I can't help but think that in this moment, as Daniel is, shares with us this prayer in Daniel chapter 9, that the Bible says that he was in the books, he was studying the books, and as he did so, I can't help but think that maybe he was in the prophet of Jeremiah. And as he read about this, Jeremiah was written before they were ever taken into exile, over a hundred years before. And so this prophecy, no doubt, drove him to his knees as he sought God in prayer. And as he read through this prophecy, and we'll read about it in a minute, I just, I just want, was reminded of how fervent he prayed to God in the midst of his response to the Word of God. And so with the books open before him, he desired intimacy with God. The same intimacy that maybe he enjoyed during King Josiah's reign as they enjoyed great temple worship. That, that same intimacy that he was, in a, he was a little boy living in Israel and he was going to the temple with his mom and dad. And that same intimacy, even now at 85, he's enjoying all over again, but on a renewed and greater scale than he ever did before. Because he had chosen a great life of prayer. So we arrive at Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is probably one of the most important chapters of the Bible. I think I said that about the last three chapters, but you get the picture. It's really good stuff. But in Daniel 9, it shares with us two important things. One is in this incredible, passionate prayer of a servant of God. And we can get, take great lessons from Daniel's prayer here. Lessons for our own prayer life. I, I don't know about you, but I, I desire that God would take my little seed of faith and move mountains in my life. Amen? And so I think that Daniel kind of unlocks some of that key for us. And as we look at this together, we're going to see some of that just played out here in Daniel chapter 9. But the second thing it shares with us in the latter half of Daniel 9 is the answer to that prayer. You see, because he was reading the books of the prophecy. He was reading about the 70 years of captivity. And he wanted to know, God, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be ended? And as he was praying and he was seeking God, God sent the angel Gabriel to answer that. And so the last half of Daniel gives us one of the most important portions of Scripture when, we come, when it comes to in, interpreting the timing of prophetic events. And we'll get into that next week uh, as we look at the remainder of Daniel 9. But today I just want to just encourage you from the Word of God regarding our prayer life and how that God calls us to have this great life of prayer. So let's read his prayer together. Daniel chapter 9, verse number 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 19 together. In the first year of Darius... The son, of, uh, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with, thanks, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from Thy precepts and from Thy judgments. 
Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. As at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off uh, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, thou, uh, excuse me, O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of faith because, uh, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against thee. To the, uh, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, through, uh, though we have rebelled against Him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His ways, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed by law, even by departing, that they might not obey Thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us. And the oath that is written in the law of Moses, uh, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges that judgeth us, by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and, understanding, and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and has gotten thee renowned as at this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God... Hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O oh my God, include thine ear, excuse me, incline thine ear, and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O oh Lord, Hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O Lord my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Shall we pray together? Father, what an incredibly powerful prayer. A prayer, Lord, from the heart of a servant who loves you and, Lord, who has served you and has, has been faithful and is looking for the promises that you had uh, the fulfillment of those promises. And God, as we look at this prayer today, it, I just am so reminded that, God, you've called all of us here today to have this same kind of life full of prayer. And so today I pray that you would uh, lay upon our hearts that, God, we would commit even now to be people of prayer. Prayer, not just uh, a prayer of, of just superficial 
But Lord, a prayer of fervency, a prayer, Lord, of humility as we bow before you and seek your precious will. Would you move in our work, our, our services, in hearts that are broken, and may we be united with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this prayer of Daniel, and it is, it is truly a remarkable example of what praying ought to be. And as I look at this, it's, I, I, just, it, I look at it as a masterpiece, uh, something we can admire, an example of principles we can follow. Because I see first and foremost that his prayer is not just something he, he read in a book and then, and then he prayed, but instead this prayer was rooted in the fervency of his spirit and his heart that he has just developed from his walk with the Lord. After years of walking with God, Daniel knew the importance of prayer. But not just the fact of prayer. He didn't know just about the outline of prayer, the principles of prayer. He didn't just study prayer because he practiced prayer and he knew the power of prayer. Remember James 5.16. This has never gone away. He says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, Pastor, I don't understand. When I pray, nothing happens. Let me just go back to that. He says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. What's your prayer like? You see the power of our prayers held in the fervency in our prayer. Look at Daniel's life. He says, in just in verse number 3 here, he says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and, thanks, and sackcloth and ashes. You see that he poured out his heart, his life unto God at this moment. He was, he was desirous of the truth of God. He was truly passionate in his prayer life. Let me just mention, sometimes we view God, when we come to God in prayer, He's just a divine bellhop. You ring the bell and here comes God with the room service that we've demanded. What a tragic view of God. What a tragic view of prayer. And let me just say that, that Old, Old Testament culture uh, demonstrates to us the sincerity of uh, His prayer and the passion in His prayer. First off, we see that we find Him in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a, a sign of grief and a, a garments of mourning. And we see here that, that even as He late sat there, uh, that, that He applied Himself with ashes. And the Bible says in the book of Job that as He prayed fervently, He sat in the ash pile and He put ashes upon His... Uh, upon his head. It was a, a demonstration of his lowliness. It was a demonstration of his humility before God. And then it also speaks of the fact that praying fervently was, uh, was accompanied with the shaving of the hair. You see, this was oftentimes in the Bible, Daniel was not the only person to pray fervently. As a matter of fact, uh, we see this many times throughout Scripture where people uh, prayed fervently. Some were uh, praying so fervently they cried they tore their clothes, they fasted, they sighed, they groaned is what the Bible says. Or they, even as Jesus' case, he sweat blood. But somehow or another, this kind of fervency seems fanatical in our culture today. If you hold such a high view of God that you can pour out your heart to him like Hannah did in the temple, then you are some sort of a fanatic that needs to be eliminated. So what was Daniel's motivation in all of this? Why would he have such a big burden? Why would he be so, you know, just, just, God, I have to come to you at this moment. Why was he so fervent in his spirit? And that's what he shares with us right now. In Daniel chapter 9, as he, as he looks here, we see that Daniel is in his 80, uh, approximately 85th year of life. He came into Babylon early as a child. 
maybe his teenage years, 14, 15 years old, he came into Babylon. And so he's approaching the time when this scripture would be fulfilled. And as he's going over the scripture and he's reading the portion of the scrolls, he comes to some portions out of Jeremiah that reminds him of the promises of God, reminds him of the judgment of God. And I believe that in this moment, in this hour, he was moved with, with, a, with just great urgency in his spirit because he knew the time was coming for God's fulfillment. Let me just share with you what I'm talking about. Jeremiah chapter 25, if you want to look there in your Bibles, verses 8 through 11, he talks about uh, the prophecy that Jeremiah shared. Jeremiah shared a prophecy a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar marched into Babylon, or excuse me, marched into Jerusalem, that, uh, that it would happen. And so Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 11, it says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Because ye have not heard my words... Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and an hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of millstones and the light of candle. All these great things, he said, are going to be removed. And this is what he says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Daniel saw this prophecy laid out in his, in his life. Daniel, as a young man, he, was, he, he remembered King Josiah and all the great things that King Josiah did. And he worshipped in the temple and he saw those things renewed. But then uh, after uh, the nation of, of Judah fell, he saw Nebuchadnezzar come in and he was taken captive. And he saw all of these things played out before him. And I can't imagine, but as he reads through this, the tears coming down his face once again. As he remembers being separated from his family as he remembers being, watching the temple being torn block from block. And he can't help but think, Lord, when will these things be done? When will this be over? Jeremiah 29.10 answers this, and it's such an encouraging place. He says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good toward you in causing you to return to this place. You know, as he read this, this prophecy, there's no doubt in his mind, he, it just grabbed his heart. He realized that the time of this prophecy had to have come to an end, and he jumped forward maybe to Jeremiah 29, 10, and as he looked there, he said, listen, God's not done with us yet. And you may be thinking, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm going through some terrible, terrible times, and I'm carrying burdens this morning. And as some of you walked in today, I could see some of those, and I thought, Lord, I don't know what burdens these folks are carrying today, but I do. I am reminded that God has not forgotten you. And so what do you do in the midst of that? Well, as Daniel was any example, as he read these books and he saw this prophecy, his example was prayer. Let me share with you a couple of principles about prayer from Daniel very quickly uh, as we, we look at his prayer this morning. And first and foremost, we see this prayer was motivated by the Word of God. You see, as he went through the Bible, as he read, read the, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and he saw these things that God had read for him, he was moved. He, he, was, he had a fervency in his spirit. There was a, a burden in his heart, if you will, because he knew that the 70 years were almost completed. 
He didn't know when it would be completed exactly, but he knew it was almost there. And he came to this place. God, help me to trust your plan. 1 John chapter 4 verses oh, excuse me 1 John 5 verses 14 and 15 says this and this is the confidence that we have in him that if any ask anything according to his will he heareth us and if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him he said listen there are certain things in the bible that God's laid out that this is his will amen this is what God wants for you. Matter of fact, God says that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance. God's desire for you is that you might be saved. God doesn't want you to spend an eternity in hell, but the reality is without Jesus Christ, every person who denies Him or never even hears about Him will spend an eternity in hell. And so He says, listen, it's not, that's not my desire. My plan, my desire for you is to be saved. He says, I want you to spend eternity with me in heaven. And that's the good news of the gospel is that God has offered you hope today. Hope beyond just uh, the, the future of the stock market. Hope beyond just the future of a new home or house or anything of that nature. You see, God's hope is something greater than that because His will is for you is to be in heaven forever. But God is not going to force that on you. You see, God gives you choice. And God gives you liberty. And God gives you the privilege to choose. Will you accept or will you reject? Will you, will you come and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be gloriously saved? Or will you go on your own way, thinking your good works is enough? The second thing we see in his prayer, his prayer is measured by his will, God's will. We don't play, pray because we want to change God's plan. I don't pray so I can change his purpose or change God's will. Okay, God, this is my desire, so I want you to work in this direction so it can make it happen. Who else is guilty of that? No, you don't have to answer. But honestly, we do pray that a lot. Okay, God, this is what I think would be really, really good, so if you could just make this work out for me, this is great. You know, I think this would work out great. If so-and-so would just be president, I think this would be wonderful. You're looking at me like I'm a, you know, like I'm a new gate or something. Y'all all prayed that. Get over it. Dr. David Jeremiah had said this, Prayer is not getting God to adjust His program to what we want. It is adjusting our lives to the revealed will of God. Amen. You see, when we pray, it isn't God who changes, but it is us. If we know God's revealed will, we should never pray against it. It's a waste of our time. I'll give you an example. Many times uh, people will, uh, quote-unquote, fall in love with someone who maybe is an unbeliever. A young lady will come, and over the years I've had young ladies in, in youth group or un, young ladies that say, uh, Pastor, I want to get married to this person. Uh, and I'll say, well, are they a believer? Well, no, but I'm working on them, and I think, that if, I think God's will for me is to, to get them uh, to marry them so they can get saved. Nope, not God's will. You say 2 Corinthians 6, 14 tells us for believers not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see, that's against God's will. And so God is not giving you peace. That may be the peace of infatuation, the peace of your own uh, hope, but it is not God's will for that marriage to happen. And so we recognize that prayer must come from the will of God. Secondly, prayer is manifested by our, work with, our walk with God. Excuse me. Daniel was a man of great prayer. He prayed frequently. We saw that in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, we saw that he went to prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and night. He was a man faithful in prayer. 
As a matter of fact, when the decree came down, he didn't start praying. He'd already been praying. He said, I'm just not going to stop. He was just like a freight train. You can't stop him. And he just kept on praying, kept on praying. But then there was, there was something else about his prayer is it was fervent. And that's what Daniel 9 reveals here. You see, his prayer, his, this prayer in his life came from his walk with God. You see, because when a crisis came, Daniel didn't change. It just revealed who he already was. Verse 3 says, He set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting. Let me just ask you, is fasting something for today? Absolutely. In the Bible, as a matter of fact, we read that Jesus fasted, the Apostle Paul fasted, and the Old Testament, Daniel, Esther, David, Hannah, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, many, many others, they were people who fasted and prayed. We're not commanded to fast today, and so some people say, well, we don't need to fast. We're not commanded. But let me just say, this is an outward, uh, this is a desire to promote fervency in our prayer life. It is a time in our lives when we say no to physical wants and desires so that we can prioritize the spiritual things in our life. So let's look in the Old Testament very quickly, if you will. In 1 Samuel chapter number 1, we see there's a young, young lady named Hannah. Hannah desired the Lord uh, to give her a child. She had no children. And so we read in 1 Samuel 1 that Hannah, Hannah fasted and prayed that God would give her a child. Fast forward in 1 Samuel to chapter 31. There's a story of, of uh, Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, who were killed in battle. And it, as the Philistines uh, killed them, they, uh, that day the entire country of Israel fasted for seven days. Then in Israel's history later, uh, not far off from the history of Daniel, we see that there was a lady named Queen Esther. And she was a lady who uh, had heard that, uh, that, uh, that Haman had... Uh, connived to be able to trick the Jews into being killed. And she was so burdened for the people and, her Jew, and the Jews that she asked those people to fast and to pray in preparation for the meeting with the king. You see, fasting is part of our life. It's part of our spiritual life. And the point of fasting is, uh, is uh, so that we can measure our fervency with the Lord. Let me just say, God is not enamored by emotionless, uninvolved relationships with Him. God desires something real. Sadly, though, that can be the state of our worship. Stale. It can become meaningless. There's no change. One pastor at a time was describing his church and said, you know, I'm sure that our church will go first in the rapture because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. I would just say I'm thankful for Hillside Baptist Church. We don't have to be dead, amen? God's not dead and neither should His people be. And God, may God help us find this kind of fervency in our prayer life that God affects our life, that we've been changed by Him, that we can be changed from the inside out. But let me just see and share with you that His prayer was fervent, but His prayer also amplified the Lord. And I think a fervent prayer, a real life of great prayer, uh, is a life that amplifies the Lord in everything that He did. In verses eleven through, uh, uh, excuse me, verses four through eleven, we see where He elevated the God in everything He did. 
And there's some comparison and maybe some contrast there as you look at verse number 3 and 4 and you compare it to verse number 5 and you see how, how he compares the state of man versus the state of God and you see the great things that God has done. But I want you to look in verse number 5 with me. Because he gives an honest evaluation of where they are. He says, and in his prayer he says, we have, what is that word, church? Sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have sinned. We've done against God's will. We've done contrary to God's desire for us. Let me just say that Daniel was a man of incredible integrity. He was one of two people that the Bible says there was nothing found in him. No uh, occasion for fault found in him. Daniel 6.4 says this, Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Now, Daniel was not perfect. He was not a man who was perfect in every way. He was a man who honestly uh, had faults in his life. He was, he was a sinner just like the rest of us. We're all sinners in need of a Savior today. But as we look at this in his prayer, we don't see him saying, listen, I'm so much better than the rest of the Israelites. He put himself down here on the level with the rest of his friends, the rest of the Jews. And he said, listen, we have sinned. We have all sinned. You ever been driving? How many are married today? Some of you are like, maybe. That's a bad sign, I'm just going to say. But maybe you're married, you've been married for a while, and you're driving down the road. Or maybe it was, I remember early in our marriage, I was more like this than I am now. Now I don't care as much. But I remember early in my marriage having to be so full and confident in everything that I did, you know. And even if I didn't know where I was going, it was before the days of GPS. You remember those ancient, archaic days, guys? Amen, the, the good old days. And I remember going and traveling, and, and my wife saying, you know where you're going? Absolutely. Don't have a clue in my mind, but I absolutely know where I'm going. We're going to heaven one day, that's for sure. We don't like to admit when we're wrong, do we? We don't want anyone to know. That's why we never stop, and stop to ask for directions. Now I don't have to. You know, now I've got Siri. She tells me where to go. And if she's not there, then my wife will help her, help me. Hey. Amen. <laughs> well, you know, the reality is we don't like to admit when we're wrong. And Daniel, he said some of the hardest words. He said, we or I have sinned. You know, we don't like to admit that we're a sinner. We don't like to admit when we've done wrong. But you know, the very first step of salvation, the very first thing that you have to admit, we all have to admit, is that God, I'm a sinner. There's no possible way that I can come to God on my own. All of my good works, all of the things that I think are so great and grandiose and all of these accomplishments, they are nothing. The Bible says in Isaiah that all of my good works is as filthy rags. The things that I think are so wonderful, the things that, I, the, things that the world look at, looks at and says, wow, isn't he such a great guy? The Bible says that they're nothing in comparison to the greatness of God. I said, Pastor, how in the world could we ever get to heaven like that? Well, I can't do it on my own. That's the point. I have to have a Savior. I have to have someone who would be willing to die in my place, someone like Jesus Christ. And that's what Daniel, as he prays, he says, Lord, we've sinned and we need your forgiveness today. In the New Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians, we learn that the, the local church is a body. We are one body. If you're part of Hillside Baptist Church, you're a member here, we are a local, visible body of believers that identifies as Hillside Baptist Church. Can I get an amen to that? 
Amen. I'm thankful for my church family. But we're a family, and as such, we're one body in this church. And so that means when, when uh, you ever notice when you hit your thumb with a hammer, how it affects your whole body? This hand, I hit my right thumb, but this hand somehow or another throws the hammer across the garage. And then it goes like this. Just kidding. But seriously, it affects all of us. And when one member hurts, we all hurt. When one member rejoices, we all rejo rejoice. This is the kind of unity that the church that uh, Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. He says, listen, we are one body. And just as just when, when one, sinner brings, uh, one person brings sin into the church, it affects the whole body. That's why Daniel was saying, listen, we have all sinned. We have all come short of the glory of God. Oftentimes, though, we want to set ourselves high and above others. Luke chapter 18 warns us against that. As Christ shares a parable with those who are trusting their own perceived goodness, He says this in Luke 18, 9 through 14, And He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in... Who did they trust in? Themselves. Thank you. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And he gives a parable of two men. Two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as, as this lowly publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. That's his prayer. I thank you I'm not these, and look at all the great things that I've done. I'm obviously worthy of your accolades. And then he contrasts it with a publican. A publican who was... A man who was known to be a sinner, he said, standing afar off, afar off, he wouldn't even so much as lift his eyes into heaven because of the conviction that, that was on his uh, heart. And he smote his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ says this of these two, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And let me just say, if we're ever going to experience a great life of prayer, it's going to come when we have an honest evaluation and we see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We cannot get to heaven on our own. There's no way to do it without Jesus Christ. I cannot live the Christian walk without the power of the, and the work of the Spirit in my life. And, and it's, it's painful to admit that I've sinned. And it's painful to admit that I'm a sinner. But this is the truth. As Ian Blacklock mentioned this. He said, The period of our devotions must contain a moment of pain. It is not God's intention that we should writhe under it or linger in it, but specific and sincere confession of our own sin is no joyous exercise. We must be honest and say, God, I'm a sinner. But when we do that, it promotes something that is incredible. It gives us a perspective that is so awesome because when we see ourselves for what we really are, as John the Baptist said, he said, I, I must decrease and he must increase. But when we see ourselves for what we are, then we see God for who he is. And we get this great high view of who God is. And as Daniel prayed, he, it's like he placed a magnifying glass over all the attributes of God and the greatness of God and the wonderful things that God had done. And as we pray, I think we could take a couple of notes out of his, his prayer book. In verse number 4, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of the phrases he used here. He said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God. The word dreadful could be, uh, also be used as awesome God. This incredible might and majesty that he holds. And he bows himself before this wonderful God. 
In verse number 7, he says, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. Amen. God is righteous. He's high and lifted up. He is above sin. Amen. And that's why we call Him the holy, the righteous God. His word is without sin. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. It's without sin. And God is holy. He is righteous. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 15, it says, O Lord our God, Thou hast brought Thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. He recognizes God's might, His power, His ability. Is your God able Amen. Remember our memory verse last, last month as we were preparing for missions? I just reminded you that our God is able to do exceeding what? Abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the same power that worketh in us. That's the God we serve today. And as we pray, we recognize His mighty hand. In verse number 18, He mentions, For we do not present our supplications before Thee for our righteousnesses, but for Thy great mercies. Aren't you thankful that God is a merciful God? Amen. I think of all the things that I deserve, and honestly, I honestly deserve the very worst of the worst. I deserve hell, and that's certainly where I would be were it not for Christ. Were it not for God's mercy, were it not for God's grace, I would be on my way to hell today. But thanks, thanks be to Christ, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just want to encourage you today that, that, that God is a merciful God. And as He looks at these attributes of our wonderful God, He is saying, listen, God is able to do anything. Somebody may ask, well, does God need us to say all these things and, and, and to, to stroke His ego? Let me just say no. He doesn't need his ego stroke by you or me or anybody else. But the truth is, is that we need to be reminded of the truths of God so that we can know who we are and who he is. Let me just say this. One cannot praise God without relinquishing his own occupation with himself. You've got to let go of self so you can give to God. And what that produces is a real prayer that seeks God's purpose. Verse number 12 through 19 as he shares here just this final portion of this prayer, it's just encouraging to watch in verses 12 through 15 how that God worked and he had confirmed his words. And verse number 13 is written in the law of Moses, his evil has come upon us and all that they had done against God. And verse number 14, it says, Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil. And verse number 15, And now, O Lord God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and gotten thee renowned as at this day as we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Listen, as Daniel shares all the multitude of things that have caused the children to rebel against God, it was the these things that he thanked God for. He thanked God for his righteousness. He thanked God for his work because it's the, the devices of man that lead us astray. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse number 21 says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. God's word will stand forever. And, and I, love, I love the scriptures. He says, Thy word is settled forever, O Lord. It's settled forever. We can trust it. We can go to it. And we can put our faith in it today. When Daniel found the will of God, he was reading through Jeremiah. He began to pray. He prayed fervently that it would be accomplished. He prayed fervently that the people would be prepared. He prayed fervently for forgiveness of sins. And really the reason he was concerned about sin was because it is a barrier to uh, what God wants to do in our place. So really, prayer is a matter of coming to God and totally being submissive 
to Him in all of our body, our soul, and our spirit. In 1872, a man named D.L. Moody, which was one of the great evangelists of yesteryear, he was um, in Ireland, and as he was there in Ireland, he heard a, a very quiet man uh, from the pulpit one day say, The world has yet to see what a man can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to God's will. Years later, uh, it's, as uh, Moody was visiting uh, Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London, he, used, he heard Spurgeon use those same words in his message. And in that moment, as he heard it the second time, God had already begun working in his heart, and Moody bowed his head and he prayed, By the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be that man. So God honored Moody. He honored him with a ministry that in spite of maybe areas that we would differ doctrinally, uh, maybe in spite of his human frailties, in spite of his lack of formal education, this ministry continues to touch lives today, hundreds of years later. Moody found out that what God was doing, and he simply got in on doing it. We often struggle with humanistic philosophies and ideas. For example, seven steps to uh, it's seven easy steps to be successful. These themes are not God-centered; they're man-centered, and and God just keeps saying though over and over and over to us as Christians today. He says, "All I want you to do is find out what I am doing." And get in on it. I remind you that once God saves us, He has a purpose for our life. A purpose that's greater than any purpose that we can possibly orchestrate. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 reminds us that just as in verses 8 and 9 uh, deal with the, the need of salvation and that it comes only through grace, we see in verse number 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for my life. And as we look at that, God's great purpose is to do His will, to honor Him in our lives today. And that means, God, I want to make sure that I have a great life of prayer, and that my life is completely and totally devoted to this idea of fervent, frequent prayer with God. Let me share with you the results. We're going to talk more about it next week. But let me just kind of give you a preview. Daniel chapter 9. Would you look in your Bible there with me? In Daniel chapter 9, verses 20. We're going to start there. It said, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, he said, Yea, while I was speak, uh, speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. The following, the rest of the chapter is some of the greatest uh, portions of Scripture we'll find regarding prophetic uh, time frame, and we'll look forward to that next week. But let me just say, God answered Daniel's prayer. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Maybe today you're going through some burdens. You're carrying a lot of weight today. You walked in here this morning and maybe there's a marriage that's feeling a little rocky at the moment. You're here just out of desperation looking for one last ray of hope.
Maybe this morning you're here because you just feel overwhelmed by all of the problems in society, or maybe your family has just been a burden to you lately. And let me just say that, that Daniel brought his, his problems and his burdens, and he brought them and he laid them before the throne of grace at the altar of God. And let me just say that God invites you to do the same today. Christ said in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, He said, casting all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. Don't forget God's care. Don't forget that there is power in prayer. There's power in this fervent prayer, this meaningful prayer. And Daniel prayed. He spent time grieving. He cried out to God. And listen, he didn't care what others think. And you may be burdened today. And let me just say, it doesn't matter what others think. The altars will be open. And the opportunity to respond to God and say, God, I'm carrying this burden. And Lord, I need to lay it here at the altar today. And you may come and there may be tears. And let me just say, it doesn't matter what others think. Only matters how you respond to God today. 